I think that wraps that up. Uh, who would like to do our intro today? Anybody? Bueller? Uh, I've had enough caffeine. Welcome to Haunted Davenport, a horror and sci-fi retro podcast about television and all good things. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Psycho 4, The Beginning, which was a made-for-TV movie that was a sort of sequel directly from the first Psycho, skipping the two second Psychos. Uh, we are going to go into full spoilers on both this movie and, of course, Psycho the Original. If you haven't seen Psycho the Original, how dare you? Go watch that now. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen Psycho 4, you should probably watch it. It's really good. Today I'm joined by my lovely wife, Allison, and Hello. her brother and sister, <laughs> Andy and Val. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming, guys. We're <laughs> doing this by Skype again because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. I don't care what anyone says to me at work every day. And so, welcome, and thanks for joining us, everybody. Let's start talking about it. Oh, yeah, it's from 1990, this movie. Yeah, so it's, 30, it's a 30 years bit, after the original Psycho. Just a little bit. And over 30 years ago. Oh, my God. Uh, right? <laughs> I was pretty sure the 90s were last decade. What are you talking about? Yeah, you and a few other people. Mm-hmm. So... So one of the things that's really cool about this particular episode and recording is we were actually able to schedule in watching it as a group online first, which is, you know, as close as we could get to our old school way of gathering together at our house and watching something and then uh, recording in person, which is how we used to do pre-pandemic. So it was really fun and I really enjoyed being able to watch it with you guys and we just finished watching it, so it's really fresh in everyone's minds. But um, yes, yeah, so Psycho, Psycho 4 originally aired on the Showtime Network, uh, November 10th, 1990. They were doing a Psycho retrospective weekend on that channel, apparently. And it was directed by Mick Garris, who horror fans know well. And we'll get into things he's done as we get into our discussion. And it stars Anthony Perkins, Henry Thomas, Olivia Hussey, and CCH Pounder. So, guys, this is a first-time watch for, what, everybody except for me, I think? Yeah. yeah. It was my first time seeing it, yeah. What did you guys think? Like, first impressions? I liked it a ton um, because I have, <laughs> in recent years, become a huge fan of Henry Thomas because of the Netflix original series, The Haunting of Hell House, where he's, he's a main character in the first season, or in The Haunting of Hell House. Yeah, I saw that he's going to be in the the follow-up series Bly Manor as well. So yeah, he he has a much smaller role in Bly Manor. Um, and I personally don't think Bly Manor is well, it's not as scary, so maybe 
that makes it better for some people. It was definitely easier for me to watch um, because it wasn't as scary. Whereas Haunting of Hill House took me three years and a great amount of effort to watch. I'm going to need yeah. to catch up with Haunting of Hill House. I That's one of my newer shows that I regret that I haven't been watching and people say it's really good. I Yeah, I need to watch that. And I think actually... Um, as much as I'm a horror fan, the fact that the second series is a little less scary, that's that's kind of intriguing to me because my appetite for really intense horror has kind of waned in recent years. It's just it's like, why add to the stress? Yeah, for, for those of you who may not be familiar with Henry Thomas, he is perhaps most famous as Elliot from E.T. And he oh, plays uh, yeah, young Norman Bates in this film and just does a really great job at it. He's um, so cute. He's just adorable. Yep. He nails Norman Bates too. I think he does such a good job in this. Yeah. Um, I was not expecting I don't know what I was expecting from this movie, but like it keeps so much in the creep value from the original psycho movie, but totally does its own thing. Like it I feel like it's very good representation of what turned Norman Bates into the psycho that he is, you know? Yeah, and I'm, uh, I unfortunately, I think I have to be the contrarian on this one, but I, despite a lot of good performances, I didn't like the movie overall. Um, it just didn't, like, uh, th- there's a lot of stuff I'll get into, but I, 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 huh? Yeah. Oh, I said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. agree um, with you. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it was, I won't say it's not worth watching. Like, definitely, if you're interested in Psycho and the Norman Bates story and stuff like that, it's fun to check it out. But I also, um, I, I, I never really, I guess, engaged with uh, with Norman Bates as a young person. I kept wishing that there was a lot more of Anthony Perkins on screen because he's just, like, he's so charismatic. Um, yeah, he yeah, is. Yeah, and he, you know, you get... His face is wonderful. I love all the close-up shots on his face when he's just doing the crazy eyes and looking a little bit nuts and speaking, you know, saying really creepy things in a low monotone voice. Um, it's great. Um, so I'm, I may be comparing it unfavorably to the first Psycho a little too much, but um, yeah, it was a, a you know I'd, I'd call it like a solid uh, five or six out of ten for me. I think that's fair. I mean, and the, here's the thing. You're you're coming off of a movie that really I'm I'm kind of an anti sequel person unless there was an original intention with the first story to continue on. You have things that were meant to be a two part story or a trilogy, and that really works well. But if you're just trying to kind of make cash a in. cash grab, yeah, I mean it's just it's it, there's a little bit of cynicism to later sequels of things that were classic movies. I think. And the original Psycho is one of my very favorite movies of all time. It's iconic. It's so well-crafted. And the performances are amazing. And for better or worse, it made Anthony Perkins basically just sort of burned into everyone's mind as Norman Bates, which I think made it hard for his later career because he was a very accomplished actor and was going to be kind of a up-and-coming leading man just in mainstream Hollywood prior to being in Psycho and having it be a smash hit. Um, And then he just kind of became inseparable in people's minds from the character of Norman Bates. 
because mm, of that creepy dude. He did such a, an amazing performance. And so anything that's coming afterwards with the psycho title on it is going to be not as good. Um, as someone who's seen all, all of the movies in this series, though, I have to say they're they're pretty entertaining. And Psycho 2 is a really strong entry into the continuation of the story. It does some things with the story that are kind of ignored in this one. And so if you haven't seen Psycho 2 or 3, we're not going to get into a lot of detail with that because I I think none of my co-hosts have seen Psycho 2 or 3, but it's not really relevant to Psycho 4 because one of the things that happened with this Um, The original screenwriter for the first Psycho, Joseph Stefano, came back and did the screenplay for the fourth film. And he basically just threw out the first two movies and just ignored them and just said, this is we're going to continue the story based on what we know from the first from the first film. And it's really interesting because in this film, the frame up is. You have a radio host who does kind of a pop psychology topical show um, played by CCH Pounder. She has a psychologist or psychiatrist on the show with her, and their subject for the this the show that they're hosting that evening is what makes boys kill their mothers. Which <laughs> like there's this extreme radio out there in the years, but I just think there's something so unethical about having people call in and tell the tell the radio host about their murder fantasies or their actual murders that they committed like this is just such a far-fetched reality that this show would even be taking place but she's hosting it Anthony Perkins is listening to it in his house while he's uh, preparing a dinner for his birthday and he decides to call in and weigh in on the subject matter because he's a longtime fan of the show. And I think that's really interesting. Longtime listener, first time. Well, the caller. reason the reason why I think it's really interesting as someone who knows a little bit about the background of the creation of the original Psycho is that when um, in interviews with Joe Stefano, when he talks about the making of the original Psycho and he was adapting the Robert Block book, which is the novel that the first film was based on, he was in he was in analysis at the time what we now call therapy but it was in that time period freudian style analysis was huge and alfred hitchcock was into it he was interested in in what uh, joseph stefano was working through with his analyst and it was just part of the conversation in the room while they're developing the story for the original psycho and so i thought it was kind of funny that this television movie about the psycho universe that happens in 1990 in an age of pop psychology and radio shows and big radio personalities and exploitation has psychology and psychologists come into play in this story in a way that they don't in two and three and joe stefano is at the helm here and he says in interviews, you know, he's working through mother issues and working with his <laughs> analyst, in, you know, back back in the late 50s when they started developing the stuff for that would become Psycho. And so I just, I, I kind of, as somebody who knows a little bit of the background, I, I enjoyed a little bit of where he was coming from with this. And, um, and so the story is told in flashbacks from the point of 
from the point of view of Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, and then we see him portrayed as a younger person by Henry Thomas, and his mother, Norma Bates, is played by Olivia Hussey, who, if you ever saw Black Christmas, the original, or Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, um, or the It miniseries from 1990, you would recognize her immediately. She's absolutely gorgeous, and she plays uh, Norman's very psychologically and somewhat physically abusive mother and yeah, we get treated yeah <laughs> major mental illness going on and we're treated to kind of the origin story of Norman Bates like how he got the way he was through the storytelling of older Norman Bates while he's talking to this um radio host and so it's it's really interesting and it's also I feel like it's very of its time, the way the story is formatted. It's kind of a very late 80s, early 90s style. And there's yeah. other there's other horror thriller television programs where you have this format where someone's calling in on the radio and something scary is happening. Sure. There's that episode of Night Visions that we kind of mentioned when we were talking about the Night Visions television series that also kind of hits those Blue similar Diamond notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very similar thematically. That's actually yeah, one of... Uh, that's actually one of the things that I wasn't super fond of in this is that it, it felt like it was half of a prequel and half of a sequel sort of stitched together into one movie. Sure. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that that's sort of like there, there was a time when that was in vogue cinematically um, because to me, it feels just like it, it, it disjoints the narration a lot. Um, and it, it, kind of takes the stakes out of a lot of things because for the for, for the prequel parts at least we know how most of this stuff pans out it's like okay well he, he kills his mother he obviously kills this girl that tried to seduce him um you know there's there's no tension because we know like when uh jumping ahead a little bit like when his mom's boyfriend is trying to like strangle him while he's being poisoned to death um we know norman bates is going to make it out alive because he's you know narrating the story um but yeah, yeah that's a fair point. And yeah, Drew actually mentioned, he said, nobody actually is killed in the modern day timeline of the story in this one. You know, like all the, right. all the murders are in the ending. past. Yeah, it has it has a happy ending. So spoilers, guys. Yeah. We weren't well, We went straight into spoilers <laughs> this time. We didn't even hold off. Right. Well, um. that's. That, that is another thing, actually. I did not like that Norman Bates got rehabilitated because basically you have a man who has killed, by his own admission, multiple people. Um, and he just gets away with it. It's fine. He's he's not sick anymore. He gets to have a birthday cake and live in a nice house with a nice wife who loves him. Yes. Yeah, and, and raise a child. Why not? Sure. <laughs> I yeah. thought for sure he was going to murder that lady who um, brought him a birthday cake or you oh, know, the, his, like, landlady or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I was, like, 100% sure he was going to kill her. I was – so Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates, is married in this in this movie. That's how, like, rehabilitated it, he is. It's, like, he has appropriate – um social interactions with other people so he no longer has like an antisocial personality disorder i suppose um yeah, yeah he's married to someone whom but he likes and but he's he's married to somebody that was part of his rehabilitation you know like it was seems really unethical yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. like the whole situation so the movie 
is basically all flashbacks. It's all just him telling this. It's a prequel. It's yeah. basically a prequel told in a sequel. So you're right there, Andy. I mean, yeah, it is. Yeah. They they double dipped. Um, but like it's in the very first movie, they talk about, you know, two unidentified bodies were also found, you know, in the muck down in the swamp and everything. So it's like they allude to there's like killings that they don't even know how they happen or who they are and everything. So it's basically a what happened to those people and how did this all begin, which is what I think is really interesting about the movie and the fact that it wasn't really a sequel because no one gets killed. But the fact that you, you don't know, because, I mean, I went into this blind. I didn't really research anything. You don't know that he doesn't kill anybody in modern day. So there is that, like, edge of your, your seat the whole time. Like, he's a freaking murderer. Like, there's no way he's not going to go just on a rampage and start stabby-stabby all over the place. And so, yeah, it was kind of... Um, it was uh, suspenseful for me that yeah. whole time. Yeah, yeah, I can, and I can agree with that. I thought actually, I, I, everything but the ending and like the last third of the movie or so takes place, you know, in in what is the present day for this film, um, mm-hmm. and it's and it's Norman and his wife, and they're going back to the old house, and oh, is Norman going to kill his wife? Is uh, you know, is he going to die? What's what's going to happen? I liked those parts of it. Right. Um, I, I had I just wish there had been something uh, a little more tangible in the first two thirds of the movie to build tension where like um, I think if 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 it were if it had been me making the movie but you know uh, just neither here nor there but like you know maybe having the wife more present instead of being at work having her be around and have him do you know creepy things that make it seem like oh which way is he gonna go on this you know what's what's he got planned for his wife sort of thing. Um, but they just they, they there was nothing like that until basically the end of the movie. Also, what's wrong with this woman? Like <laughs> she, she believes in him. She, okay, she falls in love with him. She gets married to him, even though he says he doesn't want to have children because he's afraid of what they'll do. Uh, oh yeah, spoilers again. She's pregnant, uh, <laughs> which is the triggering incident for all of this. Which is yeah, why he's he's ready to murder because he just keeps talking about how he's going to have to kill again throughout this whole movie when he's talking on the phone with the radio personality mm-hmm. um and like she she goes to his mother's house when like he asks her to it's like no don't go there well, you she, know she his history yeah, exactly. you know all of this you know what's going on and he's bringing you to the killing spot <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like so many red flags. It's like, come here. It's like the spider and the fly, but the fly isn't like duped into anything. The fly is just like, hey, spider that kills people in its web. How you doing? The spider says, oh, doing all right. You want to come hop on the web for a while and chit chat? You do. You do have to suspend your disbelief with the wraparound story a fair amount, because for one thing, the radio show would have been shut down really oh, early. Almost immediately. It, it yeah. Just yeah. for so many, like, I feel like they're probably violating FCC rules and, you know, ethics of psychology and, yeah. and just it's possibly contributing to crimes being committed. Like it's just the whole thing would just not happen. And then you also have, 
you know, this wraparound story of Norman and this kind of improbable life that he's living. Right. One thing I'll mention about the first the first two sequels, he's trying to make a go of it at his property with the house and the hotel and trying to pick up the pieces, but he's struggling in a very in a way that's very sympathetic and also a testament to Anthony Perkins' performance as Norman in both of those films. And in this, he seems like he hasn't been struggling until recently, and it's mostly just because of the news of the fact that he's about to be a father, and he believes that he has, you know, genetic, a genetic disposition to be a murderer, and he's afraid that it's going to get passed on. And his mother was messed up. He's messed up. Obviously, his kid's going to be. He's not still hearing his mother's voice in his head, other than through memory. He's not um, sharing his personality with his mother any longer, which is what he was doing up until this point. And so he's—he seems like he's much more rooted in reality. But his desire to kill isn't necessarily coming from a place of having a psychotic break. It's more of this dark idea that he his seed is evil and right. he has to he's snuff preventing it out. more murders by causing right murder. he yeah, feels morally yeah. obligated and that's that's a total different ball of wax but which is a whole new norman as Bates. long as we're i mean as long as we're like talking about some of the critical things with this i i for me i i'm willing to just you know buy the ticket and take the ride with this movie and suspend my disbelief to a certain amount i do get a little bit um frustrated when sequels really hammer home all the points that you loved about the first movie and oh, yeah. it feels like a rehash and they do that a lot here there's a lot of recycled especially lines especially in like the first half hour i oh, understand yeah. that you would continue to use some of the iconic score from the first film that makes sense to me because that sets but a mood i didn't necessarily need to hear norman bates say a boy's best friend is, is his mother again um and and that's, you know, those are just little things that take me out of it. They Or have... mother blood. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, no, mother, no. And in, the, in parts two and three, it's been a while since I've seen part three. Um, I believe they have flashbacks to the actual shower scene from the original film. Yeah, I was actually reading that this is and this the only sequel that doesn't have a shower scene. Which is scene. nice. So I can't really love the recycling as a criticism just at this sequel because it happens in all of them. And um but I think but I think other than that, I think it's I mean it's it's definitely an, an entertaining story and engrossing. And I was gonna ask you guys, has anybody ever seen the series Bates Motel, which basically has a similar premise to this? I haven't, but I'm a huge fan of Vera Farmiga. So, like, mm-hmm. it's one of those things that I've just never been ready to embark on it. But I hear it's, like, people really like it. I hear it's good. And Vera Farmiga is just, like, an incredible sort of, like, I don't know. She's kind of a sc- scream queen because of all of those um, movies she, that she's in. Yeah, she plays she plays uh, Lorraine Warren in the what they now call the Conjuring Universe movies where she plays a very a very fictionalized version of Lorraine Warren where she's a paranormal investigator and and psychic researcher and she goes and a demonologist and so if you've seen any of those movies you're really you're probably really familiar with Vera Farmiga's work and those, those are you know those are some quality quality high budget horror horror films definitely. yeah now that we're in a post Marvel slash Star Wars you have to expand the universe of everything and 
tie everything right, together. Right, now well. you have, well, in that, you have, like, the Annabelle movies, mm-hmm. and then, like, there's, like, a whole backstory of the evil nun from the um, Conjuring 2, which I think is based on the Enfield Poltergeist. I haven't seen that one yet. Um, just seen the first one. But, yeah, so, so that... I've always been a little bit tempted by checking out that series. I'm not, not sure if I would like it or not, but that's definitely, a, it's like an expansion of this idea of like, how did young Norman become the Norman of Psycho? Which is funny because I, I like, before. Oh, no. But Cor- yeah, the, I think it's, it's like a really interesting thing to want to expand on because like, you know, from the, the lens that we look at like psychosis and murder through now, um, there's really only one plot line that could explain like, you know, what made Norman Bates so twisted. It's like child abuse, child yeah. abuse <laughs> made Norman Bates twisted. Why do we need to make a bunch of media where we watch like a hot woman abuse a child? Like, why do we need to do that? I don't know. I'm not super taken with the let's explain a murderer sort of trope that everyone is so fascinated with because it's, um it's usually just really depressing. Yeah. Right. Like a good example, a good example of that, as somebody who loves the original John Carpenter's Halloween, I'm one of the people in the camp of not a fan of the Rob Zombie interpretations. And he, I only ever saw the first Rob Zombie Halloween, but he spends a lot of time trying to give backstory to Michael Myers. And the thing I loved about the first movie was that you didn't know. I mean, they referred to him when they were making the movie as the shape. He's just this force. Um, And I. I love that. That's like, I don't want necessarily want a lot of backstory, but we're kind of in an age of let's have backstory. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know, I think the thing with psycho is you get a fair amount of backstory just from how the story unfolds. Like you get little glimpses into Norman's life as to why he became psychotic because you can hear what, mother quote-unquote is saying in his head to him all the time and so you get the impression that he's this damaged person and that there was years of abuse and um there's this pattern here and this goes in a lot deeper and and it feels very much like an exploitation of those ideas but I think you know I think that's why why people were were showing up for this so (laughs) But I agree. I'm not a huge. I don't. I don't necessarily want to get into that. And it is usually really depressing. And some people like really emotional, dramatic horror, and some people like more popcorn horror, roller coaster ride kind of stuff. And I'm kind of in that second camp personally. I don't know where you guys sit. Yeah, this was um, more disturbing than I was expecting. It's very creepy. The kill scenes are very unsettling. Like they're, that, that's they're, true. I did really enjoy the kills in this. <laughs> okay, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, like the um, they're well right. done. Yeah, no, they, they are well done. Say, and, Andy. Yeah, and it, they're they're very tense. Like, and I it yeah. could just be a thing for me where I don't like uh, the notion of being like trapped and drowning. But the when when he uh, kills the woman by push you know putting her in the trunk of the car and he thinks she's dead but she's not and she starts sinking I was like oh God no why that was horrific yeah it was and awful. the look on the look on Henry Thomas's face when he realizes that she's not dead 
that she's still alive and she's going to drown. He looks really sad and like shaken by that. It's like, but bro, you thought you strangled her. How is this worse? Well, and it's like, (laughs) that's also um, pointing towards, I think um, the whole Norman Bates is only crazy and killing people when he's, you know, as his mother and everything. And so of course we can't really blame him, but like he totally watched that woman drown, not as Norma, but as Norman. Yeah. And just didn't go and save her. Cause he could have easily popped that, that trunk, pulled her out of the thing and been like, Oh my God, my mother tried to kill you. He's yeah. like, Oh, mom wanted her dead. So she's just going to have to drown. Too bad. <laughs> yeah. And, I also have to say, one of my favorite things about Henry Thomas's performance in this were his facial expressions when he has had it with his mother and his mother's new boyfriend slash fiance named Chet, which I think was a source of amusement for us while we were watching this. Um, oh, definitely. <laughs> he decides to put, uh, was it strychnine? Yeah, strychnine. In, yeah, strychnine. In the iced tea that she always wants. And with a hint of vanilla. And he, he is watching from like around a corner for them to die. And he looks frightened. But then these little flashes of a half smile would cross his face. And I really think that looks like something that you would see Anthony Perkins do while playing uh, Norman Bates. And so I really liked that he got some of those nuances of, of the Norman character. And I thought it was, it was a really good scene. Yeah. The evil, happy grin. That's like famous. It's like, it's creeping out and he's like, you know, you can see that there's two things going on. Like he's terrified. Like, what am I doing? What's going to happen? And then a little bit of evil delight of like, ha ha ha, I'm going to get them. I'll show them. And it's like, you can see the things he's thinking creep across his face. And I thought that was really effective. Yeah, I definitely think the flashback scenes are the bread and butter of this movie. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's a lot of really creepy scenes of, like, implied, like, Oedipal stuff. Like, there's not, like, full-on Oof. incest, but there's definitely, like, just a creepy, inappropriate relationship being fostered by the mother, and, like, that's makes for a really uncomfortable watch. And I remember reading some reviews for this. A lot of people were pissed that that was included. But I think the original Psycho is full of so much twisted sexuality as far as, like, this is clearly an abused person who isn't allowed to explore his own sexuality in a healthy way, and it's coming out in this twisted and violent form. And so, of course that's going to be in there. And because this was done in 1990 and not in 1960, they could elaborate a whole lot more without, and also on Showtime, without getting in trouble with censors or anything. Right. But it's in there. I mean, like, those intentions were in there in the original script, in the original Psycho, and Hitchcock was into it, you know? Right. I mean, this is right around the turn when made-for-TV movies on Showtime, HBO, and... Cinemax, also known as Skinemax, were getting more and more just sexual, and that was where they were making the money. So definitely the fact that this was on, because it was on Showtime, right? Yeah. That it was on Showtime instead of like a theatrical release, I feel like that probably 
gave them more license for the creepy sexual undertones and like the the parts of the movie that really hit hard and make certain scenes hard to watch. I don't know if those would have happened if this was a theatrical release. Yeah, it's hard to say because when you when you have more money on the table and people distributing, sometimes there's a lot of a lot of people wanting to have input and saying, oh, you can't show that or you can't do this. That's hard to say. But this, you know, again, I would say, too, when the original Psycho was written, Freudian psychology was all the rage and it was very much in the background of the conversation. And, right. It was and kind of implied in the first Freudian, movie. Freudian psychology is where we get the idea of an Oedipal complex where a son has like sexual or romantic feelings towards their mother in case you're not familiar with that term. But I feel like that's pretty common at this point, um, you know, coming from the Greek tragedy of Oedipus Rex. Um, so it's, it's just, it's part of like, I, I don't think you can maybe, maybe somebody could take objection to how these scenes are executed, but the themes that are there are there throughout this storyline and these characters. And I don't think you can really tell this story without having that in there a little bit you know something something was wrong because this guy his a lot of his impulses to kill come from his own sexual arousal like the reason why he kills Marion Crane as mother in the very first movie is because he's attracted to her and so the part of his brain that becomes has been given over to his mother out of the guilt of murdering her um it's by becoming the perceived mother in his mind and killing that person, the object of his sexual desire. And Again, yeah. what's wrong with the woman that married him? <laughs> yeah. Well, how would she still have a license? Because we see her in this film, in Psycho 4, we see her at the facility she works at, and it's like, you married your patient? That's... Yeah, I no, that's, that, that's some Harley Quinn kind of stuff, right? Well, I right. think she was just a nurse. She's not like psychiatrist I thought he said that he that she specifically was treating him okay but yeah I don't remember exactly even if you were a nurse that's still there's rules (laughs) even you know I don't know exactly what they are but I know that there are there are rules also I might be misremembering it but I felt like one of the radios in the like psych ward was playing the radio station that did happen yeah in line how did you not go like, hey, your husband's on the phone and he's talking about how he's going to murder someone tonight? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so well, we should mention that when Norman originally calls into the radio show, he gives, you know, you have to give a name and he gives the name of Ed, which is kind of perfect because. It's a tongue in cheek. Yeah. Name. Yeah. Because the original novel Psycho written by Robert Block was based on Ed Gein's murders. Um, you know, the they call him the Butcher of Plainfield. Anyway, Ed Gein, um, that story, that real-life horror story, led to the inspiration for a lot of horror. It, you know, led to the seeds for Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It led to Silence of the Lambs. Like, p- different people latched onto different aspects of that story and kind of took it and ran with it. Um, but he his story and the murders that he committed and the things that he did really inspired all, all of the whole slew of, of modern horror um, for better or worse. But so they, it was a, a, you know, nice little nod there. And also to mention um, when we see shots of the radio station, 
in the like producer's booth, we keep seeing John Landis. John Landis is a character in this. And I always oh, have the impression yeah. that he's good buddies with Mick Garris, who directed this, because they're all kind of that crop of people who are making films in like the late 70s throughout the early 80s and stuff that were doing horror and, and other genre type of films. And so it makes sense that John Landis would be in this. John Landis does a lot of cameos. In he movies. does. He does. It's as if, like, John Landis just comes out to movie sets all the time to hang out, and then people just put him in all the time. <laughs> uh, would not surprise me. He's just on set, and they're like, hey, we need a we, we need a bit character. You want to do this? Hop in. Uh, well, I mean, John Landis is part of, the, like, the, the 1980s good old boys directors club you know right yeah yeah they all they're all about the same age they all knew each other all those guys that went to i forget which school they went to in california um not berkeley anyways it doesn't um it's like all those guys you know george lucas and and steven spielberg and all the guys that kind of came up together and then all the guys that like cross-pollinated with all the Corman films, Joe Dante and all them, and there's mm-hmm. like little connections here and there. And it's, I mean, whether or not you want to talk about it being a weird toxic male environment that discluded people, or you want to talk about that it was like a great way for people that had no connections to make connections, you can go both routes with that group. And yeah, whether or not it's... they're excluding people, depending on if they don't like them later on. But you definitely see them all pop back and forth into each other's movies and and little bit parts or roles or directing things or, you know, side shoots. Right. Well, and I mean, I think a lot of people who are horror fans have mixed feelings about John Landis because of what happened with the Twilight Zone movie. Um, in 1983 but then you know he gave us one of the greatest werewolf movies of all time um, mm. and you know uh, what 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 happened with the Twilight Zone movie I'm not familiar with that story I, I don't want to like devote too much time to it in this episode because I just I feel like I don't I don't know it's, it's just it's a it's a hard thing to talk about but like th- there was a bunch of labor violations and safety violations during the filming of one of the segments involving a, a helicopter Scene. It was a Vietnam flashback, and two children and an adult actor were killed because oh of my god on the set. And um, Steven Spielberg was one of the main producers and a director of one of the segments. And um, people involved with the film kind of quickly left the country afterwards. And it's been debated again and again. Right? Who, who's who at fault? Who's really at fault? But they were definitely violating some some law as far as like some labor laws with how things were put together as far as safety and also the child children on the set and how long they were there. And um, so there's a lot of debate on whether it's all to be blamed on one person or if it's everyone wants to use that person as a scapegoat or. Yeah, it's it's, you know, I mean, Spielberg was involved to a certain extent too and and we weren't you know I was three when it happened Drew you just been born so we don't know all the ins and outs and there have been people um there's there have been like 
documentary segments about it. There's a series on Shudder called Cursed Films that does an episode about it, which I chose not to watch because I think there's actual some footage shown, and I I didn't need to see that. Um, yeah, it's so it's a real dark story, and it was one of those things that as a little girl on the playground, you talk about different scary movies, and that one always had that sort of um, aura around it of being extra spooky or that it was cursed because of that happening and so it was just like it was something I remember hearing like playground talk about um so it's yeah it's it's creepy but honestly um what I guess if I was gonna like level a finger at John Landis for something that I think is obnoxious is like maybe he should answer for why his son is such a terrible human being (laughs) (laughs) oh no his son is terrible Landis yeah, Anyways, we're getting to a whole different podcast. Here. Yeah, not not why we're talking today. We're talking about Mick Garris, who, as far as I know, never hurt anybody. And who, going is, back to that club, uh, got a personal letter from Steven Spielberg, apparently, because Steven Spielberg was such a fan of this movie that he just wanted to let him know. And apparently that uh, letter is framed in his office to this date. Also, according to IMDb trivia, so who knows how much of that's real. I love quoting IMDb trivia because it could always just be some some Yahoo that knows nothing adding stuff to, you know? I think that's believable, though, because they were all interconnected. They all knew each other. And so I could I could see how that would happen. Um, So did you want to did you want to tell the story, though, about. There was an originally, there was a proposal for a different version of Psycho Psycho 4 that was pitched that didn't get made. Did you want to talk about a little bit what you read about that, Drew? I'm trying to remember what I read about that. It was, oh, oh yeah, now I remember. It was that it was um, Anthony Perkins and the writer had the idea to... Um, Was it Joe Stefano? Was was he involved in that as well? I think that's what it said. I don't remember exactly what I read. But it was, the gist of it was that Norman Bates was getting, like, breaking out, basically, it sounded like, of the Psycho Ward. And then him and a mute from the Psycho Ward kind of go on a little road trip together to visit Mom's place. And it turns out that the Bates Motel and house are, like, being used as horror retreats kind of a thing. (laughs) And the actor that was going to play Norman Bates uh, is fired or gets sick or something. And so then they need a replacement and the actual Norman Bates shows up and then takes on the role of himself. (laughs) And they were going to do it as like kind of a dark comedy. That sounds like a lot of fun. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, that's too bad. And and sadly, sadly, Anthony Perkins passed away a couple years after this was filmed. So he didn't get to do really much else creatively. And this was the last time anyone was going to see him play Norman Bates. Um, but yeah, uh, we could talk a little bit about Mick Garris and some of the other stuff he's done. Sure. Um, so Mick Garris, I think the thing... The first, where I first started to recognize his name was because um, in the early 2000s, I started watching the Showtime series Masters of Horror, and he was actually the creator of that series. He directed two segments, um, I think one for each season, because there's just two seasons of Masters of Horror, which mm-hmm. is just 
slightly too old for us to cover yet. But I think Andy, you've too new. You've seen a few of those. I I have actually. We watched yeah. um me and my roommates because one of the episodes was famously banned in the U.S. and it was. I forget who it was directed by. It was directed by, I think, the person who did the movie Ichi the Killer, which has a reputation oh. of being um, yeah. pretty <laughs> pretty gruesome, uh, at least by the standards of the day. Um, yeah, and it was it was the one about a uh, uh, like a woman who's working as uh, like a, a midwife or something in the Japanese countryside. Um, but it turns out she's like committing abortions or something. And I think the reason it was banned in the U.S. is because there's um, a scene which re- talking about it, it sounds funny or uh, maybe horrific, depending on your sense of humor. But it's she's like uh, dumping aborted fetuses into a river near her house. Um, yeah. So you're talking. You're kind of so evil, like it's almost farce. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the vibe I got from it, but apparently the censors did not like that one. Um, yeah, the censors, the censors don't get the horror genre. Well, John at all. Carpenter did a abortion themed segment for that series as well called Pro Life, but I think um, you're probably you're talking about director Takashi Miike, who yeah, yeah, Miike, who's well known in the horror genre, and I'm trying to figure out he did. A segment called Imprint, which I never saw. And I don't know if that is one of the ones that he did. I'm going to look just really quick. I hate doing that. Yeah, so Imprint. I'm not sure what the plot of that one is, but that might be the one you're talking about. Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, that, that that is totally the one. I'm reading the synopsis now. And it also, it's like a story within a story, that one. And it turns out she's like actually in a brothel, but she's actually a demon and the brothel is hell, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I have not seen that one, but it was... Spoilers. Spoilers. Sorry for, yeah, Masters of Horror. We're not supposed all to talk these, about it yet. Sorry. All the ones I saw, I was actually renting, I think, I still lived close to a video store at the time. I think it was when when I lived in Eugene and they had the awesome video store Flicks and Picks, mm-hmm. which was an amazing video store, a little Rest mom and pop. Peace. Yeah, they had all the Masters of Horror. And um, so back to McIrris. McIrris, you know, he like I said, he created this the series, but he also he directed two segments, and one of them titled Chocolate was. It starred Henry Thomas, so they worked together again. So I'm, I'm guessing they must have had a nice working relationship. Sure. And I remember that kind of not to slam McGarris, I mean, but you got it was a like, great performance out of him from this. So I can't imagine why he wouldn't want to work with him again. Yeah, that segment or that that story. I guess they were kind of treated almost like little standalone shorter films, but part of a larger series. I was never really clear on that with Masters of Horror, but Chocolate wasn't one of the stronger entries. Um, mm-hmm. And then he also did one called Valerie on the Stairs, which I don't remember if I watched or not. It's not really a great <laughs> endorsement. Like you have watched that because I'm pretty sure we've been talking about that since like I was in high school still. I feel like that comes up every well, every so often. I get confused because there was there was a succession of watching a bunch of them. And I know I watched a couple of the Stuart Gordon directed ones. Like there was dreams in the witch house. I definitely watched that one. Um, that Valerie on the stairs, I think 
there's like a ghost or something haunting in like a boarding house. It's It's been, honestly, it's been almost 20 years. But yeah, I remember the title really well, but I don't really remember what happens in it. So Again, spoilers for Masters of Horror. <laughs> it, that's like a more of a synopsis than a, yeah, okay. than a plot. Yeah. But um, so then also people who are into horror would know Mick Garris really well from the 1994 miniseries, The Stand. He did that, directed. And I I have to say again, I I saw that as a teenager and did not care for it. I may have to revisit it since they're doing it again to make a comparison at some point. And then he did. Sorry, go ahead, Andy. Oh, I was going to say, we we, we may be revisiting The Stand on this very podcast at some point since it was a made for TV miniseries. Yeah, I mean, if you guys really want to do that, we totally can. I'm not excited I, I, about no, that. No, I, 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 I don't <laughs> know if I, with you. Yeah, if, if I want to watch eight hours of a Stephen King TV movie. So. Well, and then he also did the um, television miniseries of The Shining in 97, which I actually, since I finally read the novel, um this fall i would actually like to check that out because i've heard that it is more closely based on the actual story um a lot of people didn't care for it because i mean that stanley kubrick film of the shining is so iconic but there's a well, lot it's definitely stanley kubrick's the shining. yeah it is is it departs from from the novel and i have to say as someone who always loved the the shining the film the kubrick film i loved the book more and I actually found the book way more disturbing. So I'd be curious to see Mick Garris's treatment of that. I'd like to give that a shot. And that's, we don't need to cover that on here if you guys aren't interested, but if you are, I'd be into doing that or we can do the stand. You guys can put me through <laughs> the suffering of that. I just remember a friend of mine watched it with me and we made fun of it for a really long time afterwards. It's, it's not oh. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was like, um, and another movie that I kind of really like, but is super weird and gets kind of made fun of sometimes that Nick Garris also directed um, was uh, Sleepwalkers, which I think came out in like 90, 1992. And it has uh, Madsen Amick from Twin Peaks, who's absolutely gorgeous. And she's in it. And there's these like kind of cat demon people in it. And it's, it's fun. I think it's fun. It's not a great movie. Um, but Mick Garris has contributed so much to the horror genre. Like, I, I, I feel bad, like, saying that I didn't really care for some of his stuff. But he, you know, with the Masters of Horror, and he's done a lot of documentary coverage of a lot of great movies, like The Thing, for example. When um, John Carpenter was doing that, he did, like, a making of documentary. And, and he's done a lot to promote horror. And he has a really awesome podcast, Um that's called Postmortem. So I will post a link to his podcast for whoever wants to check that out in our show notes. Um, and he also, I think I was reading, when I was reading some of his work, he's done a lot of work as a writer as well, and he worked on Hocus Pocus, which I know we all love, so. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually just read a little bit that said uh, uh, Stephen King had watched this movie, the the beginning mm-hmm. and that he loved it so much that's how he found out about him and wanted to use him as a director oh, neat. oh. so it's yeah, like well, this, it... this this was his introduction and how he basically got the stand and the shining 
Yeah, and it's it's looking That's like so cool. Stephen King wrote the teleplays for both The Stand and The Shining as well. So the 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 Shining at least is probably much closer to Stephen King's vision. It's like like you mentioned, I think it's closer to the novels than the Kubrick movie is. Right, and yeah. I've heard I've heard that he was a, was fairly happy with how the miniseries turned out. I don't where he's famously also unhappy with the Stanley Kubrick version. And actually, right. after reading the book, that made a a lot of sense to me um because i think and it's not really like what we're here to talk about but but i think there's a lot of stephen king in that book and so when you pour a lot of yourself into something and then somebody else takes the helm and does their interpretation of it it's it's kind of it's going to be very precious to you you're going to be very sensitive about changes that are made and and i think um then the book is really really well done and and it actually like there were a couple times where i'm like why am i reading this right before i'm going to bed this is a bad idea (laughs) it disturbed me way more than than the movie ever did sure and to bring it back full kind of also the fact that this um sequel of psycho was disregarding the second the two uh, uh previous sequels and because it had that same the writer was going back to, you know, his source material. He probably, I'm guessing, I don't, Mm -hmm. I didn't read anything about it, but I'm guessing he probably wasn't happy with the other sequels. No, from what I read, Joseph Stefano did not care for the other sequels. Although I will say, I remember, I remember really liking Psycho 2. And when they went into production for that, um, and that came out in, I believe, 83, um, they basically the people who took the helm of making that movie, which was a theatrically released film, there was a lot of care put into that. And not only do you have Anthony Perkins reprising his role as Norman Bates, which basically he was reluctant to do, but he got either a treatment of the script or something was, he learned more about the development of the character in Psycho 2, and they won him over, basically. And Vera Miles, who is in the original film as Lila Crane, reprises her role. So... There's there's some. Does she reprise her role or was it clips? No, she's in it. Okay. Yeah, she is in it as an older woman. Um, I'm not gonna go too much more into it because again, I don't want to spoil that one. But it was um, the screenplay for that was written by Tom Holland, who directed Child's Play, the original, and one of my very favorite '80s movies, Fright Night. So Hmm. real serious horror cred on that um and then it was directed by richard uh richard franklin and they really really loved alfred hitchcock's work and richard franklin if i remember correct remembering correctly directed the very hitchcockian uh thriller road games which was filmed in australia and it had um stacy keach and uh jamie lee curtis in it which is a fun movie it is a good movie yeah it's and it's he was such a fan of Hitchcock that he really wanted to give this a proper treatment yeah I will say that this sequel the beginning um I wouldn't necessarily call it as they say Hitchcockian you know um it it's a very good on its own I mean, I think the directing, the writing was really great. And the writing definitely, you know, had the connection. 
Um, but yeah, I don't think it had the same kind of uh, pacing and suspense that Hitchcock would do. And But I think a lot of that also can just be contributed to the fact that you've already had Psycho and there's no way to contain that same suspense anymore because you no. know it's coming. Yeah. Because it's yeah. like, I remember at the very beginning of the movie in that very first kill scene that's in, I don't know, it's like, is it even 10 minutes in? It's like pretty pretty close to the beginning. You're talking about the original Psycho? or No, no, and, and the one we just watched, Psycho 4, the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning of the beginning, when he kills the one girl because she wanted to have sex with him. And you oh, can't want to have sex with Norman Bates. That's a no-no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, like, it shows Norman Bates going to his mother's bedside. And it's like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, Norman Bates' mom's dead and she's a mummy. And we're just going to go straight into that because we all know it makes sense. But it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, there's no suspense in this, is there? It was like a, a click in my head where I realized that I already know what's happening. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Everything we're presented about the story in the first film is very shocking. And it was very shocking to the original audiences that saw it in the theater because it was nothing like they'd ever seen before. You have your main character gets killed off and then you're left with, the killer as your through line and then her loved ones and then then you have well is the mother doing the killing or is Norman doing the killing and then that gets explained in a way that people had never seen before and so all of that is fully out of the bag by the time we get to these sequels and so it's much more about I think the tension is supposed to come from where we're wondering is Norman going to be able to overcome his inner demons is he going to be able to function? Are people safe around him? Like, you feel bad for him, but it's kind of the way you feel bad for um, a really frightened and abused wild animal. Like, you would want to help it, but you also, you could, you know, lose an eye or an arm or something if you get right. too close. And and Norman Bates is kind of that way. Yeah. Well, and also, the like I was saying about how it doesn't have the Hitchcockian feel, um, Hitchcock was very famous and he would talk about his filmmaking he basically he loved to pat himself on the back on how great he was at suspense that he would tell people how he does his suspense and he's like it's easy you just do this and then it's fine and it's great and it's like you still watch his movies and you see and you know what he's doing with the suspense and you're still riveted but it's oh, like yeah. the whole sense of like the bomb under the table that the audience knows there's a bomb under the table but the actors you know the the characters don't know the bombs under the table Mm. but like in this one it's a little bit more of the yelling at the tv screen not because trying to warn them but because why are you such an idiot yeah yeah (laughs) because it's like the wife is going to the murder house with him you know, and then going up to the murder room with him, and she knows it's the murder room. So it's not like you know it's the murder room, but she doesn't. You know she knows. She <laughs> And you're just like, why are you doing this? So it's not, oh, oh God, lady, if you only knew. It's, oh, God, lady, you know. You yeah, should You get know out there. better. <laughs> so I did want to mention, since we were talking about Psycho 2 earlier, Psycho 3 is actually direct 
directed by Anthony Perkins, as well as him starring in it. So for anybody who's interested and wants to check out... Yeah, and yet Anthony intent- Perkins still said this is his favorite sequel. Which I actually think says a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, this here's the thing. Anthony Perkins is an incredibly talented guy, not just as an actor, but also as a writer. Um, he co-wrote with Stephen Sondheim one of my very favorite mystery movies, which is The Last of Sheila. And he just, he always gave such sincere, nuanced performances, which I think because of his association with Norman Bates became kind of viewed in more like with these sequels, more of in like a slightly over the top or getting into like the world of camp slightly where he's really freaking out about stuff. But, but Norman Bates, Norman Bates is sort of like took on a life of his own. But I, I think Anthony Perkins was a incredibly talented guy and I also think he was intelligent enough to not you know just be so full of himself you know with ego and say oh well Psycho 3 is the best one because I directed it you know like it doesn't surprise me that he would have the sentiment of loving Psycho 4. And if you want to listen to Allison go on and on about how much she loves The Last of Sheila you can pop over to that was on Retro Movie Geek. Yeah yeah Retro Movie Geek um I don't remember what number episode or if they even number episodes they've done so many so, so many, many podcasts but uh she was on as a guest to tell everybody to watch Last of Sheila um if you've ever met her in person you've possibly heard her tell you to go watch the movie Last of Sheila and you should cuz it is a great movie she is right Well and and one of Anthony Perkins' sons Oz Perkins is a very talented director now. Um, he did The Black Coat's Daughter, and more recently he did Gretel and Hansel, which I loved. We actually got to see that in the theater before, before everything shut down, and I'm so glad I got to see it on a big that screen. That was the last thing we saw that was new in the theater, right? Uh, it was the last thing the two of us saw together. Yeah, I managed to go see The Invisible Man oh, right, right after that. that. I yeah. saw that scene that creepy. With creep, our creep. shout out to the horror movie club in Portland. We miss you guys. Anyway, uh, Gretel and Hansel was was gorgeous. There were like little artistic nods to late seventies Italian horror and giallo. Um, it was a well thought out story. It was great as far as dark a fairy tale goes. And and a lot of people, I I need to give Black Coat's Daughter another chance because it made me sleepy. But we watched it late at night. There's just so many wintry scenes that like the the feeling, tone was very The bleak. feeling of ennui that like permeates this girls' school kind of lulled me into sleepy feelings, even though there were really horrific things happening too. So I need to give that another shot. But that's that's something that's been highly acclaimed and a lot of people really enjoyed. And so if you're a fan of Anthony Perkins and you're a fan of horror, it, you might want to check out the good stuff his son has been doing because he's very talented as well. So anyway. Did anybody else have anything else they wanted to bring up about Psycho 4? Well, I mean, I think Plot we should talk, about, even though we spoiled the ending that, you know, everybody lives, there is multiple parts of the ending I think we should talk about. The ending was kind of, like, I, I understand, you know, complaints about the happy ending aspect of it, but there's things that happen towards the end that I thought were pretty interesting. It's as a little bit as... April Fool's Day at the end there. Well, he like just in the sense that it's a horror movie that has no actual killing in it, other oh, than the flashbacks. Right, but you're not promised killing. Right, just like in April Fool's Day. <laughs> Go watch April Fool's Day. Don't let me. I'm not spoiling it. Yeah. I'm just saying. 
but there were no actual kills. <laughs> anyway. But there's no actual kills in this movie, but there's actual kills in this movie. Anyways, watch April Fool's Day before we spoil it. <laughs> Enough of that. So, so, so towards the end, when they go back to the house, like we're talking about how the, like, why is this wife such an idiot going back to the original scene of all the crimes? Mm-hmm. Um, he decides as he struggles with you know, wanting to put an end to all this. Right, because he's gonna murder his Yeah, wife. he's, that like, was got his the plan knife out. Whole time. And she's, like, goes, look at yourself. He goes, the secret knife hole in the, uh, in the closet. Right, he has a secret knife stash. Um, and that knife is so shiny for being in that knife hole for so long. It's a horror movie knife. You have to be able to see the world in it. Mm-hmm. And, and then he decides, when he, like, overcomes that, he decides, well, I'm gonna put a stop to this, and I'm gonna burn this house down. And so... Because it's just sort of been this death shrine to all the horror that's happened. And so he sets fire to the place, but he's confronted with all of the people that we saw in the young Norman flashback scenes that he killed. And so... Yeah, I thought that was funny that all they came back because obviously they were available. Right. (laughs) But, like, you don't see... um, Obviously, can't get Janet Lee to, to do her role... But, um, like, they didn't try to represent her at all. Yeah, you don't way. see Janet Lee or Arbogast or any of the other any people of the other that aren't highlighted in this particular story in flashbacks. But we see Norman's mother. But I, And I really loved, towards the very end of all of this, he's um, down in the fruit cellar next to the rocking chair with the iconic, corpsified Norma Bates. Like, she always... Right. Like she is at the end of the very first movie and it just sort of, and she's the rocking chair is just rocking. And I loved that, even though that might seem like, again, like recycling rehash, but, it, and it, she like falls out of the chair on top of him. And Which stuff. is also and, just in his mind again. Right. But yeah. they show this in detail. And I, because as a kid, well before I actually watched the original Psycho, I knew about that the Bates Motel was scary and that there was scary Mrs. Bates. And I had like these little snippets of information about the movie. And we went to this um, exhibit at the OMSI Museum here in Portland where they they had, this is in the early 80s, they had all these movie props. They had stuff from the Alien films and Mm. they had um, miniatures from Ghostbusters and models of the, the... the hellhounds and everything and like little animatronics you could watch move but they had norma bates corpsified in the rocking chair under this glass case just like full size like full prop just rocking and i'll never forget encountering that as a kid so i got excited when like she made an appearance at the end of this movie definitely that was back when omzi used to be up on the hill still i believe yeah yeah, that's a that's a great place. That was it, such a if fun. If you ever visit. come visit Portland and take a drink for Portland talk, um, <laughs> check out Omsi. Go check out Omsi. It's a really awesome uh, museum and rotating exhibits all the time. And they do and laser- fun interactions for kids. And they do laser light shows. Oh yeah, on you can like nights. do some laser Zeppelin or laser Floyd or. Mm-hmm. I think they do laser fish now too. <laughs> nice. But yeah. Definitely. And then in the very end, after um, the place burns down and Norm Norman Bates is able to get out before he succumbs, even though all of his past victims are trying to keep him in the house, so he burns with it. 
Uh, and and I, would, I would say justly at that point. I, I, I would say that that would have been the just ending of this. Sure. A, a multiple, a, a mass murderer, like, you know, being sentenced for his crimes. Um, yeah. Well, it makes sense because the house and the property and his, the psychology surrounding his mother, like, it's also much a part of him and inter- intertwined with his being. It makes sense that he would need to go down with the ship, you know? Right, right. But Norman Bates, I, time and time again, is uh, sympathized with in the movies, justly or not justly. Um, but he's definitely, I think, the most portrayed sympathetically mass murderer in movies. Probably. Um, hmm. Yeah, and then also always lives in the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, they never kill Norman Bates. He, he just constantly gets away with it because, you know, his mother messed him up. Yeah. I, I actually, <laughs> what, what would have been a really interesting twist at the end is if you, you know, you had Norman and he's desperate to stop uh, his wife from having a baby and that like drives him to kill again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have, you have it so that, you know, they, they like fight or something in the old house and a fire starts um, and it, it ends up being his attempt to kill his wife to prevent another him from occurring that gets him killed and gets the house burned down. And then you have the end with like a single mother and a baby. And you're like, oh, no, is it going to happen again? Like, oh, oh, you know, there that, you that go. Yeah. Well, they do in the end of the end of the end is a, like a baby crying. And I think there was mention of some people wanted to extend this story into is there going to be a second Norman Bates kind of situation? Does the, Norman Bates does the seed of evil continue? Yeah. But I think that was just too much of an endeavor. No one really, no one really wanted to get into that. Right. You know, understandably. I just think it would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could see um, a sequel to this sequel where it's like Bates raising a child. Or uh, what would really be twisted is if the mother, like, dies in in childbirth or something. So he's raising the child without a mother, but then, you know, playing the mother as well. Oh, would my have been God. Twisted. <laughs> it could yeah, be called, a, like, the, the... Psycho 5 colon Seeds of Evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you had Seed of Chucky. Why can't you have yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he like goes back to the bates motel property and like rebuilds it and is like like, this is a good i this is a good place to rear children in the country away from it all (laughs) (laughs) so drew brought up real quick that there was also another made for tv movie about the psycho world called Bates Motel way before. And it was actually supposed to be a pilot for a series called Bates Motel that never got off the ground. And that one starred uh, Bud Court and Lori Petty. And I don't know, we might visit it down the road, but it's um, not about Norman. Cause I believe Bud Court is just a guy who gets a job as a caretaker. Like he's yeah, not part of the exactly what family. it is. And like, um, 
she's like a drifter or something. It's been a while since we've seen it, but it's kind of goofy and a little bit. Yeah, it's a bit tongue in cheek. Totally, it's much stranger than than what the the series, the rest of the series is. Um, I'm trying to remember when that came out. Wasn't it post Anthony Perkins passing? Possibly. Um, so no, it wasn't. It was actually it came out before this. It came out in '87. Oh. It was released on the USA Network. Uh, yeah. So. Oh, the USA Network. We might. Oh. They've had some fun made-for-TV movies. I'm actually I have surprised to say. we haven't really done a USA Network type. Oh, I have a favorite one that they did from also 1990. That's a horror made-for-TV movie. And I'm not sure if we want to cover it here, or I also was trying to convince Joel and Peter over at Terror on the Tube that we need to cover it as a bonus sometime. Um, But it's kind of, it's on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube usually, but it's not really a great quality upload because it was a 1990 USA movie, so no one really put a lot of time in it. But it's called, um, I think it's called Nightmare on the 13th Floor. It's about a hotel that has a sinister 13th floor. And I saw it as a kid and I loved it and I still think it's really fun. Um, I think the USA network in general, though, I mean, was definitely my connection into horror movies before I really got connected into horror movies. Because I would, there was USA Up All Night and Mm -hmm. there was, you know, the Captain... Captain USA. Captain USA. And they used to do Friday which, the 13th marathons sometimes. Like when I was in junior high, I would just, I mean, they were edited for cable, but I would binge watch all of Was it one of, of Joe the, Bob's shows on USA? Oh, I mean, Monster Vision was on TNT. I'm, I oh, TNT. I don't recall right. if he ever did a show for USA, but USA was definitely also TNT about and USA sometimes get mixed hosts. up in my head because they kind of had a similar vibe going. Yeah, they were yeah, the fun channels when you were a kid. It was like that; those two and TBS. Those, those were the good. You know channels. what else was on uh, USA Network was the Ray Bradbury Theater, which I had completely oh. forgotten about until just now. That's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good series, which we could totally visit at some point if you guys want to. Absolutely. Down. A lot of it, I believe, is on YouTube, but I also think there are a few other places where you might be able to find it streaming, possibly Tubi TV, some of those other kind of free with commercials type. Um, so yeah, so anyway, that I just wanted to mention that there was that strange entry into into the universe of Norman Bates where they had the Bates Motel TV pilot slash movie in 87. And this movie wasn't the easiest to find for all of us to watch as far as streaming. It, think it might be available through a stars subscription right now um psycho 4 and i think possibly psycho 2 and 3 but we ended up actually drew and i picked it up on dvd in a four pack that has psycho 2 psycho 3 psycho 4 and the bates motel pilot all on it for 10 bucks so if you're interested and you're a fan of the psychoverse if you um, if you want a marathon (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean because i've had the original psycho for Gosh, I think I bought that DVD like a decade ago. Maybe I should get a special edition Blu-ray or something sometime. But 
I've watched that DVD so many times because I just I love that movie. Um, don't worry about me. I'm not going to do anything to anyone. But <laughs> you should see Drew's face. <laughs> anyway. Why would you need to mention that? <laughs> we're what are you about, trying to cover up here? We're talking about Senko. I'm going to um, start hiding the knives. <laughs> So, anyway, it's nice to, if you know, as somebody who enjoys these films, it's nice to have all of them now. So mm, you can really marathon. Although probably somebody some t- at some point is going to like, let's do a reboot or a remake. Well, and, I mean, they did uh, the infamous. The oh, Van right. Sam. I forget that. Exists. Your brain literally <laughs> has rejected it. The shot for shot remake. You know what? Honestly. It did. I saw it um, right after it came out because I was intrigued. I don't remember hating it. I just kind of remember being like, "Why? Why, Why does, does it, it exist? exist?" Yeah, it wasn't terrible. It just wasn't necessary or bringing anything new to the table. I once heard someone explain it as if you're one of those weird people that can't stand watching black and white movies. Ugh. It's essentially this is the movie that was made. It was made I for guess. you. It was made for people that want to watch Psycho and don't, like, hate black and white for some reason because they're, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with them sometimes. Vince, Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche were just, I don't think they were well cast. I don't know. I've heard people world. say that Vince Vaughn was very creepy in it. And I, think... I could see that because I don't think you've seen Clay Pigeons yet, but there's a great movie. Clay Pigeons, watch it. Um, with Vince Vaughn in it, where Vince Vaughn plays a creepy guy. That's sort of a spoiler, but not really, because I think you know almost right away in the movie that Vince Vaughn is the creepy guy in the movie. I buy Vince Vaughn as creepy in that, (laughs) but I don't buy him, which the thing that Anthony Perkins elicits from me is sympathy and oh you don't sympathize for Vince Vaughn? And he seems really, and he seems really (laughs) fragile. Like there's this, this, this you know, sensitive fragility mixed in with the psychosis. And I think from what I remember of Vince Vaughn's performance, that he was just creepy, but it was just kind of like, it wasn't, there weren't, it wasn't as nuanced of, of a performance. I think okay. is my issue with sure. it. Um, and I don't know. I'm not like, I mean, you're comparing it to Anne the original Hachian. psycho though. So right. How can you? Yeah. Well, I guess maybe that's a better comparing option. Than psycho like to psycho. Some kind of awful, Oh, sorry about that sound, guys. Um, awful Ted Turner colorized version, you know. So. Anyways, on that note, now that we've bashed the Psycho remake adequately, um, <laughs> I think that's that's uh, all I have to say about that. If anyone else has anything else to add, I think this is the first um, first movie we've covered since I joined the podcast where like all of us are kind of lukewarm about it yeah I mean I I really love the prequel part of this movie not so hot on the sequel part of this movie but I thought it I thought it I thought it as kind of a standalone idea a good movie I don't think it's a great movie. Yeah, I mean, like, it definitely didn't hold my interest the way that, like, the last two or three segments that we did, um, like, held my interest. But, like, you know, I I definitely wouldn't have watched it 
if we weren't doing the podcast. Um, and I've only seen the original Psycho once, and I don't fully remember why he was killing those ladies or how many women he killed. I really didn't remember anything other than the broad strokes. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would say that this movie if you're a huge psycho fan and that you like know it beat for beat and you haven't seen this yet that it's a good watch just for like a fun psycho story you know the (laughs) the psycho multiverse or whatever but um if you're not a huge psycho fan you might not need to watch this movie (laughs) (laughs) it's for um the casual psycho viewer not not psycho psychos So, technical difficulties have occurred, apparently, while we're recording. Andy was having internet issues. He just sent me a message just to let you guys know. So, um, we're fairly close to wrapping up. So, we've heard Andy's final thoughts already is what I'm hearing. Yes. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get him back or not. And I apologize, guys. We're not really sure what's going on. He was having some slight issues at the beginning of the recording. Um. But I think we may just, since we're we're pretty much winding down, I think um, I think we might just wrap up and conclude without him. And then if he wants to add anything, we can talk about it next time, maybe. Sure. If he has any last thoughts that are yeah. dire, windy had to be mentioned. Or maybe this text message has his last thoughts here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the realities of of uh, podcasting through Skype. Yeah, he says he's he's not sure when he'll be able to be online again. So it's just he was having internet issues, and so he's disconnected. Sure. So, so yeah, I think that 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 probably concludes it. I think um, next month ish. I know we don't get these things out perfectly every month, um, but you know we've got lots going on. This isn't our full time job, obviously. Uh, or even we're our gonna job. we're gonna talk about some uh, something that we've touched on episodes but have never actually dedicated a full episode to it from our recollection and that's uh gonna go into the twilight zone yay for the because it does birthday special yeah yeah it, it deserves its own episode it deserves i don't know how long why it took episodes. us this long to like give it its own episode well i think part of it is the nature of this show is so broad because when you talk about retro horror television and retro sci-fi television those are two big categories and you have all these different series and you have made for television movies and um so you can do themes or cover shows and some shows were so iconic and had so many episodes that you couldn't really just talk about them in one one episode but i think the twilight zone deserves you know being revisited every couple of years or every year possibly Sure. So we're we're gonna go back into the Twilight Zone, and I think. Um, well, and Twilight Zone just covers both those genres constantly, horror and. It really sci-fi. does. It, I mean, I know it's it's typically viewed as a science fiction television show, but it it, it gets into horror a little bit here and there as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, again, if you guys are fans of the original Psycho and you're not totally adverse to sequels, I would actually recommend checking out. Um, two, three, and four, and see what you think, and you know maybe let us know what what your reactions are if you go check those out. But I think as far as horror franchises go, this is one that doesn't get talked about a lot, and it's 
um, it's definitely interesting and worth your time. I don't think too many people consider it a franchise. Like it's people are movies. like, That's yeah, what I was but it's like people are like, Psycho is well, Psycho. I think of it. Like, sorry. Yes. No. Oh no, I was I was just agreeing with you. It's like calling it the Psycho franchise kind of um, refer the movie a little bit for me because even though we just watched this it's not like that's not how I think of Psycho I think Psycho is a standalone project in the uh, public um, imaginary yeah Yeah, I believe I think that too and I think part of it is just because it's so iconic and then in the 80s which was all about hey horror's hot let's have you know slashers are popular in 83 when they do part two um, you already had so much success with Halloween one and two and you had you know the Friday 13th movies were coming out and then there were all these other little indie slashers and slashers were huge and so they were like this is the granddaddy of all slashers let's make more psycho movies and so psycho 2 has a lot more well I could say modern but those 80s which is no longer modern 80s slasher elements to it um as opposed to what the original is. And so it's you really have to kind of be down for that to enjoy them, I think. But I think if you're a horror fan and you love 80s slashers and you also enjoy Psycho, that's perfect, you know, check that out. And well, speaking of horror and 80s, uh, if we had hours to just keep talking, would we consider also uh, Jason Voorhees as a sympathetic character? <laughs> Uh, slightly, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. And and you know, there's Jason Voorhees didn't want to be Jason Voorhees. He he just he just wanted to go swimming. I also respect <laughs> his I res I I respect his you're in my woods I'm gonna murder you kind of mentality right. because first you know. off he just wanted to go swimming and then you know they <laughs> Stay out of my woods. <laughs> he he drowned and then he didn't necessarily want his mom to murder people. Oh. I'm sorry, spoilers on um, oh my all goodness. the Jason movies. <laughs> yeah. Friday the 13th, yeah. uh, spoilers. So, anyway. Everyone dies. Back to wrapping it up. I also, um, on our home site, on the hauntedavenport.com, um, I will put a link to a Making of Psycho documentary that was bonus material for the original Psycho DVD that's been uploaded to YouTube. And I think if you're interested in the background of how the story developed and you're interested in learning more about Joseph Stefano, um, I think that's definitely worth your time. I think it's a little over an hour and they have great interviews and Joseph Stefano has, he's heavily featured throughout it. So if this is something you're really interested in, I'm going to post a link to that documentary. A lot of talk about his mother. No, he talks about working with Hitchcock and developing the story. And and so it's, it's relevant to this because he also wrote this and and this comes from that. So I think, I think it's interesting. Personally, I really love hearing those. It was his direct sequel, which I think is, we've, we've made that point multiple times now that this is a direct sequel from the first, not from the second two Mm -hmm. because of him. Which I thought was actually extra funny because I always read the IMDb goofs as well. I basically am on IMDb constantly. It's his, um, it's his uh, Halloween H2. But there was like <laughs> multiple things in goofs were like, well, in Psycho 2, they did this and that doesn't work. And it's like, no, that's because Psycho 2 and 3 didn't exist to this movie. But, yeah, I know. He flat out openly said, I'm ignoring those things. So anyway... <laughs> We thank you, as always, for listening, and we hope you're staying safe and well out there, and 
we hope you will join us again for our next episode on the haunted Davenport. Well, the telephone.